Welcome to the Niche Podcast, your weekly rundown of the biotech, pharma, clinical research, and life science industries. I'm your host, Dr. Noah Goodson. This week, the 26-year pipeline, CMDO divestment, oncology, and movement among COVID-19 therapies. The views expressed on the Niche Podcast are those of the host and guests. They do not necessarily reflect the opinions of any organizations or companies with which they are affiliated. Rare diseases do not have a universal definition. Instead, a range of global institutions provide varying standards from somewhat rare to ultra-rare. These range from diseases that may have only a few individuals globally to just being relatively rare. Some locations include considerations like total disease burden in their qualification of rareness. All of this is important because most regulatory agencies have alternative pathways for regulatory approval if a disease qualifies as rare. In the case of the FDA, any disease with a total population of 200,000 or less individuals in the United States is considered rare compared to EU, where rareness is a ratio of 5 out of every 10,000 people or less. In both cases, a rare disease flag qualifies therapies for specialized guidance, reduced approval requirements, and in some cases, financial support via grants or other resources. Rare diseases are actually becoming common targets for biotech companies. This is because a combination of regulatory pathways leading to decreased financial requirements to complete clinical trials and significant advancements across science that make rare disease treatments a viable option. It's important to remember that just because a given disease is rare does not mean rare diseases are. In fact, they're quite common with over 7,000 diseases impacting as many as 30 million people in the United States alone. This week, the FDA approved Enzyvance therapy, Rhythmic, for the treatment of the ultra-rare disease congenital ethemia. Caused by genetic mutations, congenital ethemia is a deadly disease in which people are born without a thymus. The thymus is a small gland located between the upper portions of the lungs and is critical for the regulation of T-cells in the immune system. People born without a thymus spend most of their life in hospital with extensive supportive care and typically die at two to three years old. The absolutely incredible efforts to launch Rhythmic began in 1993. The treatment involves a one-time regenerative therapy used to reconstruct the thymus in congenital anemia patients using engineered human tissue. After more than 25 years and 10 clinical trials, the FDA has granted approval to Rhythmic as a treatment. The survival curves for this therapy are amazing. Without the treatment, this curve hits zero before the age of four. With the treatment, patients have lived as far as 26 years, the length of the study so far. This is not a cure-all, but a 75% chance at a long life is a huge difference from a 0% chance. Particularly impressive to me is the work over nearly three decades to see this therapy become a reality. It's rare to see divestments in the contract manufacturing and development CDMO space. In fact, over the last couple of years, we've covered major investments in Korea and North America, as well as consolidations and acquisitions. That's because securing stable pipelines is a significant and ongoing challenge for therapy manufacturing. 
Charles River Laboratories is divesting two CMDO facilities. A gene therapy manufacturing plant in Sweden is being sold for $52 million, and a facility in Japan is being sold for $63 million. Why sell two profitable CMDO plants? I think the answer is that it was always part of the plan. Charles River acquired the plants as part of the $875 million acquisition of Cognate Bioservices back in March. My guess is that these facilities duplicate existing services covered by Charles River, and the redundancy is irrelevant to their long-term growth model. While this does get chalked up to a rare divestment, I wouldn't say it's part of a trend. More like the normal post-acquisition chopping block. I promise, this is not a Merck cast. But the company, MSD Outside the US, makes top headlines again this week for multiple moves. First, remember that little drug we've mentioned once or twice on this show, Keytruda? Well, it earned another approval this week. But I'd rank this as a more noteworthy approval. Keytruda, with chemotherapy, is now approved by the FDA as a first-line treatment for patients with PD-L1-positive cervical cancer tumors. This is the first first-line treatment for this condition approved in seven years and continues the seemingly endless successes for the monoclonal antibody. The same week, Merck has submitted their COVID-19 antiviral therapy, Molnupiravir, co-developed with Ridgeback Bio, to the FDA for emergency use authorization. It's not surprising to see this moving forward quickly, and I expect the FDA to have a rapid response for the EAU. There are some concerns around pricing for the medication in the United States. Merck has already agreed to deliver 1.7 million doses to the U.S. government at $712 per course. Sounds fine for a life-saving treatment, except experts are saying it costs less than $20 to manufacture. Now, Merck is not the all-evil pharma here. They are licensing out manufacturing to several Indian companies who plan to provide a supply globally at close to $12 for the 10 pills taken over five days during the course of treatment. Mark themselves say they plan to produce 10 million courses by the end of 2021. Regeneron was the first company with a meaningful therapeutic to treat COVID-19. Their antibody cocktail, Regen Cove, has been used significantly under FDA emergency use authorization. Now, Regeneron has a date with Destiny in the form of an April 13th review date for full FDA approval. Regeneron is also delivering 1.4 million doses to the U.S. government by the end of 2021 under the EAU, but with new products emerging, their lead therapeutic position may not be sustained. If Merck's new oral treatment is as effective as anticipated, it's possible it could take a significant chunk out of Regeneron's long-term profits. But with antibody cocktail infusions generally posing higher risks, switching to an antiviral may not be bad at all. I think the most likely course is that Merck's product becomes the mild case at-home standard of care and Regeneron's antibodies are for more serious cases. Ultimately, we'll have to wait and see what the data say. Thanks for joining me on the Niche Podcast, your weekly summary of the top news in the biotech, pharma, clinical research, and life science industries. You can learn more at thenichepod.com, 
or find us on your favorite podcast app. Like, comment, subscribe, and most of all, share with your friends. If you like what you hear, please rate and review. It really helps us. Once again, I'm Dr. Noah Goodson. I'll see you next week. Thank you.